Would your child be suffering from seizures? Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. A seizure occurs when the brain functions abnormally. This can result in a change in movement, attention, or level of awareness. When it involves children, seizures can occur for any one of a number of different reasons. With us today to discuss childhood seizures and headaches is Dr. Dina Kornblau, a pediatric neurologist at SBH Health System. Welcome, Dr. Kornblau. Thank you very much. Now, I guess our perception of seizures where, you know, someone's legs are kicking or they're unconscious or they fall to the ground is not necessarily the case, right? Correct. Um, there's, there's two main types of seizures. One of those big ones that we call convulsions. You fall to the ground, you get stiff and shake. They're very dramatic. They're very scary to see. Um, but you can also have very little um, mild, uh, mini ones, I would call them, where it's just suddenly just stopping, staring off, and not moving, and not responding for a few seconds. Uh, it can be very not dramatic at all, and is often missed for long periods of time as somebody uh, daydreaming um, or just uh, you know not paying attention. Um, and can be easily missed. You told me a story a while back about a young patient that you had who would be watching TV or doing homework and then he would seem to be daydreaming. And I think you mentioned that both his teacher and his pediatrician thought he was just, maybe he had ADHD or he had moments of where he just sort of went into his own world, but you found that wasn't the case. And I guess that's not unusual, right? No, I mean, they're, um, I mean, the most, the vast majority of the time when a kid seems to be daydreaming, they really are just daydreaming. They're just thinking about things. But the key question um, is, can you get him out of it? Can you can he see responsive to you? If you uh, go right in front of him or clap in his face or snap in front of him, does he respond immediately? Like, huh, what's going on? Or you just can't get him to respond at all for several seconds. Um, so the vast majority of the time, parents say, you know, well, you know, if he's not responding when he's watching TV, I put something between him and the TV and he responds. Or, you know, you can snap them out of it. But if you can't snap them out of it, then perhaps it's not an attentional problem or a behavioral problem, but you can be having these little mini seizures called absence seizures that are easily treatable and if missed can uh, lead to decreased school ability, uh, diagnosis of attentional problems and other things like that. How do you diagnose something like that? Let's, let's say a parent brings their child in because they're convinced there's more than just an attention deficit here. Do you do an EKG or what, what do you do exactly? Um, so, so first of all, full evaluation in, in the office. One of the things that uh, I can do a quick test in the office called hyperventilation, having the patient kind of heavily breathe for several moments, and if that's what's going on, that will often trigger it. But the real test the is called not an EKG, but an EEG, an electroencephalogram. And what that is, is basically I put these little wires all over your scalp, um, and it measures the electrical activity of the brain. Um, and it just measures the electric activity of the brain while you're sitting there, while you have your eyes closed, while they're open, they'll turn out the lights and try to have you fall asleep, so in different states of the brain. And then they do things to kind of try to provoke seizures. Um, one of them is the biggest one is the hyperventilation, having you breathe heavily um, and watching how your brain responds to that. They'll also do something called photic stimulation, basically with you, when the child has their eyes closed, they have like a strobe light, like a disco light, just producing lots and lots of uh, flashes of light and seeing how your brain responds to that. Some people who have uh, epilepsy are very prone, uh, very susceptible to flashes of light triggering off their seizures. So that's another thing to look at. 
But, but, but these are relatively quick and obviously painless uh, procedures, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yes. The EEG is a, a simple thing. It does, child, it's not like, for example, an MRI taking pictures of the brain where the child has to stay completely still for 20 minutes inside the machine. For that, most children under 10 will need to be sedated. In the EEG, a child does not need to be sedated. They can be awake. They can be moving around as long as they're not just, you know, uh, having a, a tantrum. But it's not, doesn't hurt. It's not a scary test. If there's a concern, a real concern for seizure, it's, it's very helpful. I would say, though, that if there isn't a concern clinically for seizures, if there's nothing going on that seems like a seizure, it's not a test that should be done because you can get EEGs that um, can really muddle the water. There are times where um, they've done studies where people who have never had seizures in their life, and they've done studies where they do EEGs on them, and some of them have EEGs that look as if they should be having seizures but never had. And the other way, if people who have definite repeated seizures, which is called epilepsy, who in between the seizures, the EEG can be normal. So it's a very helpful test, um, but it's not a perfect test. It needs to be done in the context of seeing a physician and and looking at the whole picture. Do kids, if they're going to have seizures, do they get it by a certain age typically? It depends so on the type of seizure. So uh, you can have a seizure anywhere from zero days to a hundred and something. Um, your brain, anybody can have a seizure. Sometimes the most common things that can trigger seizures, if you get hit on the head, a young child has a high fever, those are things that commonly trigger seizures. But that's not epilepsy. Epilepsy is someone who's having recurrent seizures without anything triggering it, without low glucose or without you know, a fever. There's nothing there that seems to be triggering it. That's what epilepsy is. And that can occur at any age. Does it tend to be familial? Families pass it down, typically? Some types of epilepsy are familial, and many of them are not. What are the common types of epilepsy? Epilepsy can be uh, secondary to an underlying disorder of the brain. So for any child who starts having seizures, if there's a concern, we need to make sure that there's no uh, abnormalities, malformations of the brain, or tumors of the brain that we need to be concerned about. Most of the time, very often, the MRI pictures what the brain looks like is absolutely normal. I often get parents saying to me, well, then what caused it? Well, you don't want to find anything abnormal. You want it to be normal. You want to be a child who has normal pictures of the brain, normal electron, uh, electroencephalogram, normal development. And those are the children who have a much better chance of outgrowing these. Many, many children outgrow these. So there's different types of epilepsies, and those epilepsies are defined by how old the child is when they start having the seizures, and what type of seizures they have, and what that electroencephalogram looks like. And if you take those factors, that helps the physician figure out which kind of epilepsy it is, and therefore which medications to use or not use, um, and will this child be likely to outgrow this, or more likely to need to continue to be on this. I know it's hard to put a percentage on it, but do most kids tend to outgrow epilepsy? It depends on the type of epilepsy. So for example, a disorder uh, known as childhood absence epilepsy, that's a type of epilepsy where they have those kind of brief staring spells that we talked about. Almost everyone outgrows that by 16 years of age. And the more serious bouts of epilepsy, uh, there are more advanced treatments today than there used to be, right? Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, most patients 
can be treated with medications, and we have a lot of different medications now, much more than we used to have in the past. If those don't work, there are other things that can be done, such as electrical nerve stimulations to the brain even, um, and there's even surgeries that can be done, but those are obviously not the first thing that you try. There's also special diets, but by diets, this is not something like just... Uh, a simple diet that one might consider like Weight Watchers, but that's a very severe restrictive diet with um, concerns for growth and cholesterol and other abnormal problems that could be on such a restrictive diet. So it's not something that we take lightly to say, oh, why not just put this child on a special diet rather than giving medication because the diets that work are very restrictive. Okay, so it's very customized to the case of the... Absolutely. And I guess, like you said, seizures come in all shape and size and so do treatments depending on... The Absolutely. type of epileptic seizure. Yes. Let's uh, switch course a little bit and talk about headaches sure. now. That's also an area that you see a lot of. And I guess, I remember you telling me this, at the beginning you de determine whether it's the type of headache that may be due to something else or whether the headache is the primary cause. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, that's my job. My first and foremost job is to make sure this is not a dangerous headache, what we call a secondary headache, secondary to something else uh, going on. Parents come in, they're always worried about the headaches. They're always concerned if there's a tumor or something terrible. That's almost never the case. But that is my job to make to weed out, figure out which of those children I am concerned about and need to do further testing, and which of the children what we call primary headaches, which the pain is the problem, the most common of which would be migraines, which is the most common thing I see. Migraines are, tend to run in families, so very often there's someone in the family who has it. They're severe, they tend to be pounding headaches, you can get nauseous with them, vomit with them, light bothers you, noise bothers you, you want to stay very still when you have them, and they can be very disruptive. How young do you get migraines, or can you get migraines? Very young. Um, I'd say any child under five, I'd be a little more concerned that I'd say, do we, are we missing something else going on? But five is, is, is uh, it's more common to start as a, an early teenager, um, but uh, as early as five, absolutely. I have migraines. Two of my five children have migraines, and uh, they started at five years old. Wow, wow. Are those related to stress or made worse by stress or lack of sleep or diet or, or things like that? Um, so most people with migraines have certain things that trigger off their migraines. And so one of the longest things I spend time with is going over with the child and the family over things that can commonly trigger. So stress is a common one. That's a harder one to deal with because it's, it's you know, stress of school. Well, it's, it's hard to just say, well, just don't be stressed anymore. But um, so times like that, whether or not therapy or counseling or uh, evaluations in school, certain foods commonly trigger headaches, things such as hot dogs, bologna, things with have uh, nitrates in them. People to commonly take drink too much caffeine, like in caffeinated sodas, and that over time can trigger headaches as well. Cheese is a common trigger of headaches. Um, lack of sleep is another common trigger of headaches. Uh, skipping meals um, and uh, not drinking enough fluid. Those are kind of the most common ones in every child I see. I give a headache diary. I go over all the different possible triggers, show them ways to kind of keep track of what they think may or may not be triggering the headaches so that they can take control of them and hopefully have fewer headaches. So you actually recommend that these kids keep a diary. Absolutely. And so they can go back and say, you know, on Tuesday when I had a hot dog or I had a, a test to study for which I didn't feel I was prepared for, that triggered Absolutely, the yes. Yes. You made a, an interesting point last time we spoke about how high achievers are more prone very often Absolutely. to headaches and yes. to migraines. Why do you think that is? 
Um, I think that um, they, we, <laughs> uh, put a certain stress on themselves. And so in that case, it's, it's you know, when a stress, that's a good stress, right? You want people to care about school and to be a high achiever. Um, but it absolutely is related to the headaches. Apparently, uh, over 70% of neurologists get migraines. Um, and why that is quite so is, in the, but with certainly doctors have a high percentage high achievers overall. Are there certain do's and don'ts when it comes to migraines that you should or shouldn't do? as far as whether it's medication or as far as how do you respond to them? So in terms of lifestyle stuff, make sure you're sleeping well and long enough. Make sure you're not skipping meals. Make sure you're drinking enough fluids. Making sure you're not being under more stress than you need to be. Those are just huge. Making sure you're exercising and keeping yourself fit. Um, the other things is sometimes if you're taking too much medication for migraines, like Tylenol or Motrin, um, those over time can give you what's called medication overuse syndrome and actually worsen the headaches over time. And actually caffeine is an excellent medication for migraines. It's in one of the medications that we use commonly, Excedrin migraine, has caffeine in it. But um, many people get medication overuse syndrome from caffeine. Um, I have children, you know, most of the kids are not drinking coffee, um, but large amounts of caffeinated soda, two liters of Pepsi a day. Um, anyone who's drinking more um, daily caffeine is at risk for medication overuse syndrome, and one of the first and easiest treatments is get that out of your system, whether it's caffeine or Tylenol or whatever it is, to try to uh, cut back on that. But I guess the treatment really is if you keep that diary and you know what triggers it, um, I guess over time you get a sense of how do you reduce the migraine or at least the intensity of it, right? Right. So ideally, right. So ideal would be you figure out what your triggers are and, you're, and you completely cure your migraines. Uh, that often, actually that can happen in younger children. In teenagers, there's often like a stress component involved um, and a hormonal component. Um, and so that's a little bit harder to kind of get rid of all of them. So the first goal is get fewer headaches by figuring out your triggers. Um, and the next goal is finding a medication that works for you, and there's several different choices, and making sure that you're not needing to take it too frequently to cause worse problems. For children who continue to have frequent headaches, by that I mean more than once or twice a week, then they are at risk for medication overuse syndrome, and then it is better for them to be on what we call preventive medication, a medication that you take every day to try to prevent the headaches from coming, rather than taking a uh, a, um, a migraine medication each time you have the headache because that will run you into trouble with medication overuse in the long run. So for those patients who, the, you know, they've done done their homework and they're looking for triggers and they're trying to find medications that work for it, but some of them just need a daily preventive medication to try to calm everything down. Do you recommend certain supplements? Uh, yes. Um, until recently, there was not. There was lots of different supplements that were talked about as being helpful for migraines, and none of them were really proven to be helpful. One of which there's been some s small studies uh, would be um, high doses of riboflavin, which is a B vitamin, um, uh, as well as um, high doses of magnesium. So I've been taking to lately um, try to see if that works for some patients first before we try other uh, medications. Um, but they're not well proven, but with things that are not well proven, the question becomes, are they potentially dangerous? High dose vitamin B probably is not. Are they very expensive? Because insurance won't cover vitamins and supplements. And if you know if it's been disproven, don't want to go there. But if it hasn't been disproven, then it might be worth something to try before we try other things with side effects. What What about other integrative uh, things, integrative health things like meditation? 
Absolutely. The problem, you know, it, it's hard to, so meditation, cognitive behavioral treatment, um, therapy, those are all absolutely have their roles. It's often hard to get a teenager to, which is most of my patients are teenagers, uh, to kind of, meditation takes a lot of hard work to learn it and to do it and to get to really be able to meditate successfully. But absolutely, things, anything with stress reduction is great. Okay, well, uh, Dr. Dina Kornblau, I really appreciate your time here today. Let me give a phone number in case you want more information on uh, pediatric neurology, 718-960-3730. And again, for any services, pediatric or otherwise, at SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And until next time, thank you.